Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Norris Cotton Cancer Center Grand Rounds. I'm Tom Davis from Medical Oncology. I have the privilege of introducing today's speaker. Uh, today we are fortunate to have Dr. Paul Oberstein from uh, Columbia, who's going to be talking to us about his work in locally advanced pancreatic cancer and lots of new challenges. I think everybody in the room who's a clinician knows what a challenge pancreatic cancer is. So I'm looking forward to hearing some of these new developments and areas of clinical research. Um, Dr. Oberstein started his academic career at the University of Maryland, went on to Ohio for medical training, and then to Temple University for internal medicine residency. Then he went to Columbia University for fellowship, and he remains there on the faculty as an assistant professor. He has a long interest in uh, GI cancers particularly. His CV has a lot of very active clinical trials. He's interested in cancer cachexia, which we won't be talking about today. He's also just finishing a Master of Science in Biostatistics and patient-oriented research, as if being a faculty physician and researcher weren't enough. Um, so he's a man of many talents. I'm very interested to hear what he's going to tell us about what he's been doing in pancreatic cancer. Uh, today's talk does not have CME credit attached. Uh, the support for this talk comes from a device manufacturer, so we were not able to resolve those conflicts of interest. But this is not a promotional talk. We'll be talking about some new techniques. Um, so without further ado, Paul. Thank you. I'm not sure if this is working. Thank you very much. Um, how do I do this? Here we go. So good afternoon, I guess, now. Thanks for having me up here in sunny New Hampshire today. So um, just a quick, a quick intro. I, I am an assistant professor. I do uh, a lot of clinical trial work, a lot of translational uh, research. Um, but anecdotally, I, I, have, I have a bunch of small kids at home, actually. And as you'll see in my talk, pancreatic cancer is not something you really want to discuss around the dinner table. So I also work in a, in a mouse lab uh, where we do uh, therapeutics, mouse therapeutics, and I'm not going to discuss that at all today, really. Um, but for a very long time, all I really discuss with my kids is the work I do in mice. And, and it turns out my children are convinced that I'm a mouse doctor. So um, I'm not, and so you're not going to hear about mice today, but that's, that's something that I do sort of in my spare time, in my research time. And, and a lot of this research uh, that we do, we go back and forth between the mice and, and humans. Initially, we try to develop drugs in this mouse hospital, genetically engineered mouse models. But more lately, and we've actually done a lot of work where we take interesting findings in humans and can go back and ask very specific questions in the mice. But what I'm going to discuss today is really a general overview of pancreatic cancer, talking about some of the progress that's finally been made after decades of frustration. Um, and of course, many, many challenges remain. So the first slide, um, which is something that I, it's a mixed slide here because I updated it this morning uh, from, from new statistics. But these are the cancer statistics for 2015 at the top. It's estimated there'll be around 49,000 cases and around 40,000 deaths from pancreatic cancer in 2015. Just by comparison, it's estimated in the same, in the same projections that there'll be 40,000, I think, 800 deaths from breast cancer in 2015. So essentially, uh, the similar number of, of people in the United States are projected to die of pancreatic cancer as breast cancer in this current year, although, of course, the incidence of breast cancer is far, far higher, over 250,000 women. 
Um, although it represents only 3% of estimated total number of new cases, it counts for 7% of cancer-related deaths, and that's because the mortality is so high in relation to the incidence of this disease. And you can see it's the fourth leading cause of cancer death of both among men and women in the United States. Um, and this is a slide I show, and some people, Stefan, has seen this many times, but I, I find this to be extremely powerful. This is from a SEER uh, collection of data from really the last uh, 20 or 30 years, uh, but this is a slice of in the last decade, so in the 2010s, essentially, uh, 2000, sorry, um, of the, the, what they're looking at here is a difference in cancer-associated mortality at five years between uh, African-American and white patients. Um, and basically what I'm trying to illustrate here is you see the list of all cancers. And unfortunately, pancreatic cancer is the most lethal of these, this list of 25 cancers, of all really common and even uncommon cancers. And that's not a number we want to be. We've got to move up this list. And so unfortunately, today, if a person's diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, their, their five-year survival is lower than almost any other diagnosis that we have of cancer. Um, and we've got to change that, of course. So um, this is another way graphically of looking at this, where you see how the, these are mortality rates from among men, at least, uh, and there's similar graphs for women. You see that the mortality rate is going down for the three for the common cancers up here. I guess this is not showing up that well. Um, but pancreatic cancer, which is the fourth leading cause of cancer death among men, is not going down in incidence, even though it, it remains uh, lower than all of those. And because of that, the projections are, and these are European data, but the same data exists for the United States. But the projections are on the left of this graph, you have data from 2010, which is actual data. The top cause of cancer death in the, in the Europe as well as in the United States is lung cancer by far, then colon, and then this is breast cancer here. But it's projected, and we've crossed this barrier already this year in around 2014, but it's projected that by 2020 and by 2030, the incidence of pancreatic cancer, the, sorry, the mortality of pancreatic cancer will be the second leading cause of cancer death in developed countries. And that's not because, it's partly because it's getting worse, but mainly because the other cancers are declining in mortality, and we haven't made that progress in pancreatic cancer. So we need progress. Um, and one of the, you know, obviously, we all think as researchers and as clinicians why pancreatic cancer remains such a great challenge. There are many, many reasons for this. Many are probably unknown. Um, but I'm going to review several of them today, uh, partly just to throw them out to give a perspective of what I think are the main challenges. Hopefully there are people in the audience who are doing research and are thinking of new ways to overcome these challenges. Um, but I, I grouped them here into a few couple categories. One is diagnostic challenges. So it's very challenging to diagnose pancreatic cancer. I'll review some of the epidemiology, some of the risk factors. But unlike the other cancers that, that incidence is declining, such as lung cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer, we haven't identified screening tests or good uh, risk factors that can be modified, like smoking and lung cancer or hormone therapy in, in breast cancer, so that we, we don't yet know what to do in order to reduce the incidence of this disease. We don't have good strategies for detecting this earlier, for figuring out who we should focus on for our screening programs, and even for giving uh, therapy that might that might uh, prevent a early uh, abnormal lesion from becoming a cancer, like we have in colon cancer, for example. Uh, there's, there's a huge amount of research, and this is something that I do research in, but I'm not going to discuss in great detail, in chemotherapy resistance. And so 
We know that the same chemotherapies that work in other cancers clearly don't work as well in pancreatic cancer. Uh, some of that is, is probably expected. Not every cancer is going to respond similarly to chemotherapy. But there seems to be a particular resistance among pancreatic tumors to standard and even non-standard chemotherapies, including new immune therapies and other other things that have shown great promise in, in, in uh, other cancers, for some reason, and I'll discuss some of them, are, are not as effective or not effective at all in pancreatic tumors. And then finally, the third thing, which I'm going to discuss because it's something that I, I spend a lot of time dealing with with my patients, is the issue of surgery. And, you know, there's specific, I'd say geographic or anatomic might be the better term, uh, limitations in doing surgery for pancreatic tumors. And, and we are, there have been attempts, including something I'm going to discuss today, to overcome some of those limitations. Um, and as I said, you know, one of the goals here is to identify factors so that we can figure out how to overcome these problems. Um, but clearly, and this is the progress of this, there are better chemotherapy options today in 2015 than there were five years ago and certainly than there were 15 years ago. And so there's sort of small progress, and we'll, I'll show some of the, well, what I mean by small. Um, but certainly it's progress. There, some agents have been FDA approved for this. Others have not been FDA approved but are widely used. And clearly there's, there's some momentum and a lot of room to go in terms of chemotherapy and pancreatic tumors, and there are expanded surgical options, which I will review. Um, in terms of risk factors, to get to the first part of this, so we don't know exactly what causes a person to get pancreatic cancer. We have a very, every patient asks when they walk in, why did I get this? That's an obvious and very obvious question. Uh, people want to know. And we don't usually have a very good answer. We think smoking increases the risk by a little bit, maybe twofold, but nothing like you know, lung cancer, or head and neck cancer, or other cancers in which increases it far more than that. Um, we think that diabetes, patients who have diabetes for a long duration, which we define as greater than five years, have an increased risk of diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. But there's been a lot of debate, and it's uncertain whether that's because there's already pancreatic insufficiency or abnormality contributing to the diabetes diagnosis, whether it's just a sign of the tumor or whether it's actually a contributor, whether there's inflammation with diabetes that causes cancer. Uh, obesity and physical activity, again, there's a lot of conflicting data. Probably being very obese increases the risk, but being underweight probably also increases the risk, which is something common to many cancers. And so the exact uh, connection to diet is unclear. Chronic pancreatitis, so if someone has inflammation in their pancreas, their risk is higher, but that's not, thankfully, not a very common uh, problem. Um, age is, is clearly, as we know with all cancers, as you get older, the, the incidence goes up. And the mean age of pancreatic cancer diagnosis is 71. Um, family history certainly increases the risk, um, but we don't, and I'll, I think I'll describe some of that. I don't know. So if someone has a first-degree relative with pancreatic cancer, their risk goes up by maybe 50%, so one and a half fold. If they have two first-degree relatives, it goes up much more than that. And if they have three first-degree relatives with pancreatic cancer, the risk of pancreatic tumors goes up at least 15-fold in the family data that's been done, mostly at Hopkins. So we know that that matters. We don't exactly know what to do with these kindreds except make them very, very nervous that they have an increased chance of having pancreatic cancer. Um, hopefully that will change. Um, this you know, is something that we, we have known for a long time, which is that the tumor stroma, so the area around pancreatic tumors, is unique in the sense that it's far more prominent than most other tumors. There are properties about these what we call cancer-associated fibroblasts or all kinds of other terms for this uh, stromal. Uh, there's, it's not just fibroblasts. There's also immune cells. There's also um, actually a lack of... of uh, 
uh, blood cells, or vascular cells in, this, in the area. But this is a picture of a human pancreatic cancer, and you can see that the glands, this is, what, and this is what the epithelial cancer glands look like. But the vast majority of this slide, and this is true about most tumors, is not the actual epithelial cancer cells. It's some supporting stromal cells. And there's a lot of research that's been going on and is going on into how that may cause chemotherapy resistance by either suppressing the local immune system, by preventing drug delivery because it reduces blood flow into that area, some other uh, interplay between the cancers and the stroma. A uh, cautionary tale, which is a research that we recent, that we published last summer, is is that there is certainly uh, the reverse effect as well. And so there are situations in which you deplete the stroma around pancreatic tumors and cause them to be more aggressive, and increase metastasis. And so it's not it's clear that by just depleting stroma, and there have been clinical trials that have failed in this regard, you're not necessarily going to make these tumors more sensitive to chemotherapy. Um, this I included, uh, I said this because from a review article that I, that I published that, we, I, so I made this chart, so it was a lot of work in this, but these are all phase three clinical trials comparing, you know, each one has somewhere between 200 and 800 patients, comparing gemcitabine, which is a standard chemotherapy in pancreatic cancer, versus gemcitabine plus something else. And essentially, every one of them was a negative study. And so this is around 20 years and over 10,000 patients many, many investigators and resources trying to find a chemotherapy that would be better than gemcitabine without, without real success until um, the first real positive phase three study, or dramatically positive, was published in 2011, and I'll show that in a little bit. But there's been a real, a real resistance to chemotherapy, and we clearly think some of that is what we call innate resistance to chemotherapy. Um, we know that that there's a lot of what we call cell autonomous sources of resistance to chemotherapy, meaning the mutations in pancreatic tumors are mutations that have not been effectively targeted to date by chemotherapy or by small molecule inhibitors or targeted therapy. And that includes, of course, KRAS, which is mutated in over 90% of pancreatic tumors and is the most common oncogene in cancer. And to date, there is no good therapy for KRAS-mutated tumors. Uh, there's a tremendous initiative in the NCI to, to address this. Um, and hopefully that will lead to some new therapies that will have an impact in pancreatic cancer. The other mutations, P53 mutations, which are, it's a tumor suppressor, which is extremely common in pancreatic cancer. Other mutations I listed here, which are very common, CDKN2, locust mutations. We don't yet have targets for these, for these genetic mutations, or, and, and there is a lot of investigation to identify those. Um, there are also, of course, non-cell autonomous, so the tumor microenvironment, as I described, contributes to chemotherapy resistance, and there's a lot of research into how to overcome that limitation. Um, but this is one thing that has been an area of some bright hope, I think, in that we know there's a genetic component, and this accounts for only a very small number of pancreatic tumors, so around, we think, 5 to 10% of pancreatic tumors. There was a huge initiative published last week by Andrew Biankin and colleagues in Australia to do whole genome sequencing of 100 pancreatic tumors. And so our hope is that through that kind of effort, we'll identify a larger number of targetable mutations. But to date, we think around 5 to 10% of patients with tumors have an inheritable mutation that contributed to their tumor. The most common one is BRCA1 or BRCA2. BRCA2 is actually the most common. Um, and the, the good thing about that, I guess, is that we have emerging therapies 
uh, that may target BRCA mutations in ovarian cancer and in breast cancer, and we're engaged in clinical trials testing those in the population of pancreatic cancer patients who have these mutations. Um, we don't know yet if they're going to work or how they'll work, and it is clearly a minority of, of patients. As you can see here, there's some other very, very rare genetic mutations that can increase the risk, PRSS1, increase the risk 30 to 50-fold of having pancreatic tumors. Thankfully, these are very, very rare mutations. Um, in terms of population, so these, this is incidence, uh, this is again data from um, SEER, I believe, um, and it's data, yeah, it is from SEER, so it's data about incidence and mortality, which in pancreatic cancer track very closely among different populations for reasons that are unknown in many cancers, African Americans have a slightly higher rate of both incidence and mortality of, of uh, pancreatic cancer. Non-Hispanic whites, which is a large majority of the population that's followed in these databases, have, you know, are sort of the baseline, have a very high level. There are some populations that are slightly lower, um, but again, it's not dramatically lower, and we don't yet know if there's a real population or genetic basis for this, or if it's just happens to do with incidence and access to medical care and some of the other uh, reasons that cancer uh, is detected differently in different populations. Um, in terms of age, this is not true just about pancreatic cancer, but these are incidents and mortality, incidents on the left and mortality, I'm sorry, incidents in both of them for um, different populations. On the left is male and female, on the right is African Americans, I believe, and white patients. But the incidence of pancreatic cancer and therefore the mortality goes up, as you can see, quite linearly with age. Thankfully, it's extremely uncommon below the age of 40, and certainly 50 or even 60. Again, the median age is 71. But it consistently goes up uh, among men and women. And of course, as, as the population ages, it means that we'll see more and more pancreatic cancer. Um, in terms of how does a person find out they have pancreatic cancer, this is a huge limitation because it's very difficult to detect this tumor early. Um, most common presenting symptoms of pancreatic cancer are weight loss, abdominal pain, and depression, when you go back and ask someone what changed in the last 6 or 12 months. Unfortunately, if you take a population in their 70s or 60s or 80s, weight loss, pain, you know, vague pain, and depression are very, very common uh, findings. And so if we took every 71-year-old person who had depression and we thought they had pancreatic cancer, we'd be doing a lot of unnecessary CAT scans and diagnostic tests. And so we clearly need better tools to, to figure out who has this who has this syndrome. There are other things here, jaundice, incidental findings, as more and more people get CAT scans, we see it more and more as an incidental finding, which may be a good thing uh, for that person. Um, but we don't yet have blood tests. You know, we use something called a CA-99. It's not a good test for diagnosing pancreatic cancer. It might be good for following the disease. But to date, we don't have very good ways to determine who's going to get pancreatic cancer. And again, this is sort of a challenge to develop these ways. And there is a lot of research, but to date, nothing that we're using in the clinic in, in identifying this. This is a, a quick graph for staging. I'm actually not going to go into it, but the staging currently is based on, this is what we call a TNM staging, tumor size, the neural status, and metastasis. We don't really use it that much in practice. Um, because it's really a surgical staging, and very few patients with pancreatic cancer will actually go to surgery. And so what we use as a diagnostic staging, I'll go through in a minute, um, is really based on the anatomy of pancreatic cancer. And so this is from a recent review, uh, David Ryan and colleagues, that this is the pancreas in the schematic view, of course. Um, the pancreas continues down here, but it's cut out, um, because they want to show you these, blood these um, ducts 
So the pancreatic duct and the common bile duct, which together come into the ampulla and into the duodenum, they all come together here. This is where many pancreatic tumors, most pancreatic tumors, are in this area. And that's why often patients present with jaundice. Uh, the challenge is, is that behind this pancreas, there's an aorta, and the superior mesenteric artery and vein, which you're seeing the bottom of here, they come out around right here. And so very, very commonly, pancreatic tumors in the body of the pancreas and even in the head of the pancreas will involve those blood vessels. Uh, if they're in the top of the, if they're higher up, they'll involve the celiac axis or many, many other blood vessels, the hepatic artery and other I don't want to make a fool out of myself by saying too much anatomy here, but other, other arteries that, that are critical for the other blood vessels in the mesentery and in the abdomen. And the real challenge is that very often even local disease is unresectable because of involvement of those blood vessels. And so this is uh, a picture uh, which I annotated as much as I could here, but uh, this is obviously a regular... Obviously, this is a regular CAT scan of a patient. The T here denotes what a pancreatic tumor looks like. It's what we call hypodense, so it's darker in this imaging. This on here on the right side is the liver. You see kidneys down here. Um, and the, the tumor here seems to be clear of blood vessels, but this is what, this is the superior mesenteric vein, I think, and the artery below it. You can't tell here necessarily which contrast phase it's in, but I think it's venous. And so here the tumor seems to be clear of these blood vessels. This is the kind of things that we do on a weekly basis. We have an interdisciplinary pancreatic conference where we sit with radiologists and surgeons and gastroenterologists and oncologists, and we review around 30 to 40 patients a week of just some of them are re-review. But looking at pictures like this for a couple hours gets pretty mind mind-numbing. But, and that's really the question, is how close is this tumor to those blood vessels, and can it come out? And so in, in practical uh, sense, at the end of this kind of discussion, we define tumors as being either local, meaning they're in the pancreas, they're resectable, they're easy to remove, and they come out. That's a very small number of cases, probably 10 to 15 percent. And as we get better imaging, we see that this number goes down and down. And so the more MRIs you do, the more you can see that maybe the tumor is close to a blood vessel and is not easy to remove. On the bottom, the other end of the spectrum, there's distant disease. So pancreatic cancer that's spread most commonly to the liver. And again, in our experience, it's around 40% of cases. Some series describe it 50 or 55. Uh, we, we probably get a lower, uh, an earlier stage patient. But then there's this huge middle ground, which is what we call local regional disease. And that accounts for probably you know, 30 to 40% of all new cases of pancreatic cancer. These are patients who have tumor that's confined to the pancreas. So there's no evidence that it's spread to the liver or the lymph nodes. Uh, well, the lymph nodes are not critical in the staging, but certainly not to distant uh, places like the mesentery, like omentum, or the lung. But it's difficult to resect because it's either what we call borderline resectable or locally advanced unresectable. It's, it's difficult to remove because it involves blood vessels. And because... This decision of staging depends highly on can it be removed surgically. So the way I just described the staging really depends on can a surgeon remove this well or with completely with R0 resection. We really have to have both good imaging and good surgical input in order to stage a patient 
properly. And so obviously the recommendations are that every patient should have both good imaging and very good uh, multidisciplinary input if it's borderline, if it's in that middle ground, which we find many patients are. It's not always feasible. There are centers which don't have the availability of either the imaging or the surgical or the multidisciplinary nature of this. And there are a lot of strategies nationally to overcome this. There's, there's attempts to have central imaging where you could send your MRI pictures in and get a sort of a central multidisciplinary group to give you an opinion on this. It's critical in clinical trials to do something like that. And I think that will help in the staging of patients. Um, I just want to see, sorry. So I, I, later I'll have a slide describing the difference between borderline resectable and locally advanced, which is a moving target. But in terms of goals of treatment, so what do we, what do we want to accomplish when we have a patient who has pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma? That's my abbreviation there. And so, of course, we'd like to cure patients. That's our goal. In reality, the five-year survival rate of pancreatic cancer is around 5 or 6%. So we're not going to achieve that goal, in, even if five-year survival counts as, as cure. We're not going to achieve that goal in the vast majority of patients. Um, but if the tumor can't be removed, there's no chance of getting there. So there's almost, again, there's always rare exceptions, but there's, it's almost unheard of to have a five-year survival and certainly a 10-year survival in someone who doesn't have primary resection of their pancreatic tumor. And so really the only chance to cure someone is to be able to remove a tumor. And as I said, for many patients, for most patients, it's not feasible to remove their tumors. And so we can emphasize goals that are what we call palliative goals. So secondary to cure, things to make a patient feel better, to prolong their survival, to improve their symptoms. Um, and certainly, we can treat some of the local complications, things like obstruction or jaundice. Um, but we also, you know, we very aggressively treat symptoms. And in our, in our thinking, really the main goal of chemotherapy is to make someone feel better, um, not just to prolong survival by a short period of time. Of course, it's important to do that as well. But because we know that the chemo for many patients is just palliative, we're always trying to focus on what's the best combination of effective chemotherapy and something that will allow someone to have good quality of life. Um, the final thing I'll talk about at the end of the talk will be trying to get patients to a point where they can have surgery. And we're successful in downstaging a small number of patients who may be able to get a curative resection. In terms of palliative care, and I'm not going to read everything on the slide, but this is also something I think we have to put up, is to talk about all the things we can do besides chemotherapy and sometimes besides surgery to improve quality of life for patients. And probably in the last 20 years, this is where we've made the biggest advances in terms of treating pain, treating nutrition, addressing cachexia potentially. We haven't really made progress, but we're work working on it. Um, treating things like ascites or, or blood clots, which are all very common things that cause morbidity in patients with pancreatic cancer. Um, so for most patients, we do need to give chemotherapy. If it's been removed, the chemotherapy is to prevent or delay recurrence. Um, many patients were trying to downstage the disease, get them to surgery. For most patients, chemotherapy is palliative. Um, and this is, I, I'm going to have some more pictures here. I like taking pictures. Uh, these are not high-quality pictures. They're screenshots on my computer of a PAC system. So um, bear with me. But these are all pictures of patients I, I recently treated. And so I, I think we have to remember in all tumors, and especially true in pancreatic cancer, response rate is a, is a huge criteria in clinical trials, but it's clearly not not an outcome that, that necessarily, you know, it's a marker for us as to whether therapy is working. But, you know, response rate may not be um, adequate because this is a patient on the left here. This is her. 
a tumor. I don't know if you guys can all see it, but it's darker here, and that's hyperdense. That whole thing is a pancreatic tumor. Running right below the tumor um, is the superior mesenteric vein and superior mesenteric artery here, uh, which as you would go along with this tumor, you would see that it's not going to be resectable. She had chemotherapy, had a very good response. You can see the size of the tumor here is much smaller. This is what we would call partial response based on standard radio radiographic criteria. But of course, uh, unfortunately, the blood vessel still runs right, right there through the tumor. And as you continue going, this hasn't made this person a, a surgical candidate. It has probably prolonged her survival. It's probably reduced her symptoms. And it's, a, it's really a good outcome with chemotherapy, but it's not enough uh, in terms of leading to cure. And of course, that might be unreasonable for many patients. Um, for stage one or two patients, meaning people who've had cancer removed, we, we give chemotherapy. I, I show this picture as well. The reason we give chemotherapy is to prevent recurrence. This is a patient I, I treated, I'm treating still. He's doing quite well, actually. But he had uh, surgery in, in May. He came in with a small pancreatic tumor. It was removed. He came to see me to discuss post-surgery chemo, and we did this scan, and this is what we saw, which is a tiny little lesion in the liver. This is metastatic pancreatic cancer. And so despite the fact that he had a very successful surgery, this means that his cancer has escaped the pancreas. It's spread to one spot in the liver. There's never, we think, just one spot. It's likely elsewhere. And this is now, unfortunately, a patient who's not curable and, and will require chemotherapy. Like I said, he's doing very, very well, actually. But, and, you know, unfortunately, he needs to continue chemotherapy for an indeterminate period of time, uh, but really as long as it works. And so we always give chemo after surgery to prevent these kind of recurrences. It's not successful in the majority of patients. This is data from a very large uh, randomized trial of patients who had surgery, who got gemcitabine versus observation. That's a chemotherapy. Uh, it's not FDA approved in the setting, but it is used very widely. Um, so it was given post-surgery. And you could see that, unfortunately, the vast majority of patients had recurrence and died of their pancreatic cancer. And so the five-year survival rate in one group was 10%. So 90% of patients recurred by five years. And in the chemotherapy group, it was 20%. So 80% of patients recurred. That's a significant difference. 10% overall survival benefit of five years is bigger than we see in most adjuvant clinical trials, but it leaves behind around 80% of patients, unfortunately, who will still recur. And so this is the standard. We give this chemotherapy. We're, of course, trying to do better. Um, for patients with metastatic disease, this is a very old trial, and this drug is FDA, it's the same drug, it is FDA approved for this indication, um, which is for patients who have either stage three or four pancreatic cancer. And again, this was a trial done in the 80s, early 80s, I think, published in, in 86. Um, in which uh, patients either got gemcitabine or 5-FU, which was a standard used chemotherapy. Those who got gemcitabine, it's hard to see in this graph, did better by around a month, month and a half, um, meaning survival went from four months to around five and a half months. Uh, they had much better or much significantly better clinical outcomes in the sense that they had less pain, uh, less uh, fatigue, higher quality of life scores that were used back then. And so this is approved and it's a standard therapy. But again, in many, many clinical trials done in the last 20 years, gemcitabine therapy in stage four pancreatic cancer leads to a median survival of around six months. And it has not really changed in the last 20 years. So obviously we're trying to do better. Oh, I showed it again. So these are the positive trials. And so these are, these are after all the failed ones that I showed you, these are the few that have shown some benefit. Uh, some are more widely used than others. I'm going to focus on two of them. One is um, 
Conroy's study, uh, the French study that looked at gemcitabine versus fulfirinox and showed that median survival went from 6.8 months to 11.1 months, which again is, you can either think of as a four and a half month benefit or as a 55, a 45% improvement in overall survival. We usually describe the second one to our patients. Um, but it is clearly a, a huge improvement, um, though it's a very toxic regimen and needs to be given in a selected patient population. And more recently, uh, Von Hoff and colleagues published uh, a study comparing gemcitabine to gemcitabine plus nabpaclitaxel, which provided, again, a probably 30% benefit in overall survival in this patient population. Uh, this was FDA approved, so gemcitabine and nabpaclitaxel is FDA approved. Fulfirinox was not because it, it was not submitted by anyone to the regulatory agency. Um, and this is really the best we currently have. So this is comparing the group that got gemcitabine to the group that got fulfirinox in, in a Kaplan-Meier curve, and the, the probability of survival is clearly better among those who got fulfirinox. Unfortunately, at the end, the, the long-term survival remains very low for even those patients, um, but currently the standard is for a very selected patient population who can get this, this aggressive chemotherapy to get fulfirinox uh, for metastatic pancreatic cancer. Um, this is a, a graph which I, I really like and I, and I tell it to my patients. Uh, some may call it misleading. But this is the other phase three trial, gemcitabine versus gemcitabine plus nabpaclitaxel. You can see that there is a separation of the curves. There's a slight benefit. But the other thing that's quite notable is that at three years out from randomization on this trial, there were some patients who had metastatic, biopsy-proven metastatic pancreatic cancer who were still alive. And so it was a small number. It's around 4% or 5%. Um, but finally, we're seeing that there's some, um, some therapy that leads to one-year, two-year, and even three-year survival among patients with pancreatic cancer. Of course, we're trying to figure out what's special about these patients and why their tumors seem to respond. And perhaps we can find you know, subsets like this in different therapies and figure out, once we get much more genomic data and, and information about tumors, we can figure out how to tar target chemotherapy to get more and more survivors uh, for one or two or, or even more years. The rest of my talk is going to be about the middle. So non-metastatic pancreatic cancer. And so many patients, uh, in our experience, it's around 50%, if not more, present without metastatic disease. Um, we, we use more imaging techniques in order to stratify them. But all of the data that I presented, the phase three studies, exclude this patient population. And they're only for metastatic patients. So we don't have very good data, we have no comparative data to tell us, to guide us into how to treat these patients. Uh, we often use patients, use data from metastatic disease, um, but we don't have great data. And the question is, how do, you, how do you define these patients? And so these are guidelines, a lot of people get together in a room, ESMO or NCCN or other societies, and give definitions of what's borderline resectable, what's locally advanced, depending on which blood vessel it touches, which blood vessel is clear, if it's 180 degrees around the blood vessel or 90 degrees around the blood vessel. But in practice, um, this is a definition that, that, I, that we use a lot. I tell my patients this definition. It's not, it's not exactly objective in the sense that you can ask five people and you get different answers. But when we think of the difference between what we call borderline resectable and locally advanced disease, we think of borderline resectable disease as a patient who has a local tumor, it's near a blood vessel, it can't be removed today, successfully, or we don't predict it will be, but we think that with some chemotherapy or some extra, we can get it out. And that extra could be shrinking it a little bit, it could be radiation, it could be 
venous reconstruction. Sometimes we don't get it off the portal vein, but you can reconstruct that vein. Um, and so we think of borderline resectable tumors as things that will come out in most cases. Now, you know, there's no real objective measure, and this is limited clinical trials, because it's hard to have a clinical trial of borderline resectable patients if everyone will have a different definition of whether that patient fits that category. Locally advanced cases are patients are people who we really think uh, have cannot be reconstructed. It's very unlikely that it will be removed with traditional surgical means. And so we have we use criteria. Again, I showed you NCCN criteria, but these are, are not hard and fast criteria. And this is just an example, again, of what we deal with all the time. We look at pictures like this. This patient here, I don't know if you can see this, but you can see the darker part over here. This is a pancreatic tumor. This is the pancreatic duct that's dilated. And you can see that the dark stuff is is going down here towards the celiac axis. And so this tumor, the soft tissue of this tumor, is around that blood vessel. You cannot remove that blood vessel. And so this would clearly ca categorize in our setting as a locally advanced tumor. Um, but as you can tell, it's a subtle thing, and it's very difficult to find consensus. Um, one, of, you know, one of our goals as a center at Columbia is to increase the number of patients who can have surgery that is reasonably likely to be successful, meaning to give them benefit. And so we are very aggressive in giving neoadjuvant chemotherapy, often followed by radiation. I'm not going to talk about the radiation. Um, that also is not standardized, but we use it. Um, and we've had acceptable outcomes, um, but the optimal, optimal regimen is not defined. And so we use a regimen called GTX. Historically at Columbia, we've had very good outcomes with it. Uh, some people use Fulfirinox, but this is a, sorry, it's very faint. I guess I should have changed the background. But this is a, a paper that we published as a group uh, this fall of, of a phase two prospective trial of around 36 patients who had what we call locally advanced disease, plus there are 12 patients in the study who had borderline resectable. We sort of closed that arm early because of accrual, but the, the main goal here was patients who are really traditionally unresectable at, by, by standard criteria, NCCN criteria. They all got neoadjuvant chemotherapy for four months. They were all followed by radiation. Most of them got IMRT for five weeks with, chemo, with concurrent chemotherapy with radiation, I'm sorry, with Zolota and gemcitabine. And what you can see here, and this is again a Kaplan-Meier survival curve, is that the median survival of all patients here, this is in green, is around, green is everyone, red is just those who are locally advanced, is around the same as to what we see in patients who have stage one pancreatic cancer, so around two years. And so essentially, by treating these patients aggressively, these are selected patients, but by treating them aggressively, we can, make their, we can cause their survival to be similar to someone who could have surgery up front which does not mean that they're all cured, unfortunately, but it means that they have a longer median survival and it approximates those who have resectable disease. And so this is a, a very feasible strategy, again, in selected patients. Um, this is just a case, uh, I'll show you, this is a borderline resectable patient. You can see here you have a stent here in the middle of the tumor, sorry, which is helpful. Uh, and show you where it is. It's a large tumor, but it's, it's touching here the portal vein, but it's distinct from arterial vessels. It's what we call portaline resectable. Patient got neoadjuvant chemotherapy. He got surgery, and the, he's now a year out of the surgery, doing well. But you know, there's a hole where the tumor used to be, thankfully. That's what we want to see. But you know, this, is, this is a case where you can sort of get someone to surgery. Again, I don't know what the long-term outcome is, but certainly the short-term outcome was equivalent to 
a regular resectable tumor. But we also have many patients like this. And this, again, is a patient who's unresectable. The dark thing here is tumor. It's coming right down here. Uh, I think it's probably the same picture I showed before around, I don't think it's the same one, but similar, coming down to the celiac. And that's unresectable. And so what do we do for that patient? And so what I'm going to discuss now is what our surgeons do. I send them to our surgeons. but. Um, our surgeons and interventional radiologists use a technique called, we call it nanonife. It's IRE technology, irreversible electroporation is the, I guess, the official uh, technological name to use as an adjunct to surgery in these kind of patients who have locally advanced pancreatic cancer. We use it in two primary settings. One is what we call margin extension. So a patient where you take out the primary tumor, but it's going near, say, an artery that can't be removed, and you use it in that setting. And there's some patients who just have tumor around the blood vessel, and there's not, nothing to really remove. It's not actually in the head of the pancreas, and we just use it for what we call primary control. We think of it in that setting to be very similar to radiation, but perhaps more targeted. Um, and so just one word about the role of getting negative margins. This is data, retrospective data, from Hopkins showing over, I think, 1,000 patients. In those who have R0 resection margins, meaning there's no tumor left at the edge at the time of surgery, the survival, again, in both groups is not optimal. But clearly, those who had a better surgery or more complete surgery have better survival by several months than those who didn't. And so we extend this idea so that if there's someone who's having surgery, but we don't think we'll get negative margins because it's on a blood vessel, we'll use the nanonife to clean or to use it on that margin. Uh, and we, have, we don't know yet if the data is the same. But our expectation, our hope, is that it will provide benefit as if we remove that entirely. And this is, this is where we use it. So as I, as I showed you, there's a couple settings. Uh, really, it's, it's a thermal ablation system, this irreversible electro irreversible electroporation. Um, utilize these probes to cause permanent permeable, permeabilization of the cell membranes and therefore hopefully kill them without distorting the structure too much and causing uh, severe toxicity on the blood vessels. We use it, again, in security and treating borderline resectable disease where you're trying to get these R0 resection. Sometimes in potentially curative surgery where there's an extension to a blood vessel and you want to use it in that setting. And then sometimes we use it not necessarily for curative treatment, but for local disease control in someone who has either recurrence or only disease of touching a, a blood vessel or something that can't be removed. Um, this is a, I borrowed from one of our surgeons. It's a very highly schematized view of what happens. Of course, the tumors don't give you such a good picture of themselves. But you inject, you put these probes. This is done in our center. It's done open. So patients are done are at the time of surgery. Uh, they're opened up. You, you know, access the retroperitoneum. You access the area around the pancreas and the tumor. You insert these probes uh, around the tumor and then, you know, release the energy um, and hopefully kill the tumor without uh, dramatically affecting the underlying blood vessel and the structure. Um, these are some of the data. I don't think the details are that important um, of who we've done it in. But this is an example of a patient, a recent patient, 73-year-old guy presented with jaundice. His tumor was touching the SMA, which is the superior mesenteric artery. It can't be removed. Um, so he had four months of chemotherapy. He went for surgery. But when they opened him up, they found that it was still adherent. And our surgeons, are, our surgeons like to say they carry this sometimes in their back pocket. They're literally these probes that are around 12 inches tall, I think. Um, 
They obviously have to prepare for the possibility that they may need this, but since at the time of surgery they found that the tumor was still adherent, or at least the tumor mass, was still adherent to the superior mesenteric artery, after the traditional resection, they converted it to what we call a nanonife surgery, um, and this was the picture of him, uh, as you can see, before surgery. This is the superior mesenteric artery coming right up into that tumor. Um, and then post-surgery, I don't have a picture, but he's, he has recovered nicely. And so in this patient, again, these are short-term outcomes. This was around nine months ago. Um, but he did very well after surgery. The recovery was not impaired. And he's one of our 50-plus patients who we've so far treated with this technology. But in his case, it was done to do something we call margin extension, to add on to removing the regular tumor. In some cases, and this is another patient of ours, this patient was unresectable, meaning uh, the tumor, this is further down, but again, you see the soft tissue, it's just encasing the artery here, and it's hard to know where it ends and where the artery starts. This is clearly not something you can remove traditionally. In this patient, it was done just for local control, um, and this is the case. She was very young. She's a 59-year-old woman. It was encasing the SMA uh, there. She had chemo. She went to the OR, and again, it was still, it was still in, around the superior mesenteric artery and its early branch points. The surgery was aborted. She got more chemo, and after a period of more chemo, showing that her tumor hadn't already metastasized, hadn't spread to the liver, they went back in, and they gave her local therapy with this, with this technique. Um, she did well post-op. Uh, she did not recur locally. She did recur in her liver. Um, and again, we don't know because we don't have controlled data yet, and again, we're collecting this in our experience in our center, whether the outcome would have been the same if she didn't have this procedure, if it's better because of the procedure. Again, in, in patients who have surgery, they usually come back as well in the liver. So again, it's hard to know in, in a non-controlled setting whether this procedure helped her in that case. Um, I'll show you the data from overall. This is from our center in the last two years. Um, it's not all updated. This is as of January. But essentially, you know, we've done over 50 cases. And again, when I say we, it's very loose. I have nothing to do with this. So I give the chemotherapy and send the patients over to the surgeon and the interventional radiologist to do it together in the operating room. Uh, they've done over 50 cases. Uh, initially, they were doing... In, you know, I, I think it's a short time frame, so I wouldn't read statistics into this, but um, some of the time they, are do, they were initially doing it as margin extension. They did more and more that were primary nanonife, meaning patients who either we've removed the tumor and it's recurred in an area around the SMA or around the celiac. Um, those patients, we often will give them a trial of chemotherapy. They have to prove that they're not going to have early recurrence which doesn't mean they won't have late recurrence. And then we give sort of primary treatment to the recurrent site with the nanonife with this technology. Um, again, just some demographics from these patients. Uh, we've done 51 at the time that I made this, this graph in January. The, the age is 66. We've done as old as 88. We had an 88-year-old woman who had this. Um, we, you know, we've done it, as you can see here, Around half of the cases were for margin extension at the time of surgery. Around half of them were for primary treatment of a tumor that couldn't be resected because it was touching an artery. And five of them so far have been for recurrence. Um, and these are just, again, I don't know how much to go into this detail, but this is just some of the characteristics of these patients who had it for margin extension. Um, most of them required venous reconstruction at the time of surgery. And for the most part, you know, the surgical outcomes, which I'm not going to show you, were very similar to what we see in our center with regular aggressive surgery, which is to say some people do, unfortunately, poorly after surgery. The vast majority recover 
appropriately, are able to go home, and we're following this for long term, but the longest term follow we really have is two years. Um, and so uh, I think this is my last image slide, but essentially the reason that we're doing this is that we need more options for this kind of patient, um, and this is a very young person who came, as you can see here, now that you guys are all experts in imaging, uh, there's a blood vessel that goes right here, and there's a tumor that's right in the, around that blood vessel. So it doesn't impair flow, no problem getting the, the blood there, but obviously you can't go in and cut off that section of the artery. And so we unfortunately, and with better imaging technology, just for orientation, right, this is the pancreas coming down. So this tumor is coming off the head of the pancreas, and, and it's unresectable by every measure. There's no way this tumor can come out. This is a not, un, not an uncommon sight in our practice. And so we're trying to use everything that we have to treat this patient. And in our hands, that includes aggressive chemotherapy, radiation therapy, you know, very, very careful restaging. We do a lot of diagnostic laparoscopies to make sure it hasn't spread. Um, but then if it can't be removed off this artery, which it usually cannot be, um, using what, we, what I call advanced surgical techniques or something like the nano knife as a as a adjunct to surgery in this kind of patient, um, and so that's I think what I just said our bottom line. So pancreatic cancer is serious and unfortunately a growing disease. New strategies are needed to change the trajectory of the illness to make it get better, like other cancers are getting better. Um, there have been significant, but I said small, but they're you know, not dramatic, but significant recent advances in chemotherapy, which should be implemented. A large number of patients present without distant disease, but remain difficult to cure surgically. And so we now have new and increasing options to help these patients, including the two that I just really described the most, neoadjuvant chemotherapy and radiation and advanced surgical techniques. Clearly, clearly neither of these has been evaluated in a controlled trial. Uh, partly it's difficult to do it because of staging, but it's not impossible. We, we, clear, we gather data on our patients so that we can at least go back and report what we see. I think that's a minimum of what we can do when you use new technologies. Other centers are doing that as well to determine you know, surgical outcomes, long-term outcomes, recurrence patterns. Um, but clearly, we need to do more. We need to invest more in, in clinical trials. And this is the plug for what I do, which is to, we need new animal models to test these kind of things in. Um, and so that's a lot of the work that I'm doing in the preclinical setting. Um, and so literally, final slide, there are new therapeutic options. Much work needs to be done to understand the biology of the disease, to understand how to have early diagnosis, to understand you know, how we can intervene, how we could treat people who might have a family history. To date, unfortunately, almost all of that has not been proven. There's, there's almost nothing that we can do today to change the trajectory um, yet, but we, I think we'll develop that. And I'm certainly optimistic, and we're optimistic as a center, that you know, things are, have really changed. So there's a lot of new momentum in pancreatic cancer research. Um, there's, there was a bill passed by the government, I guess, that surpasses bills in last year called the Recalcitrant Cancer Act, um, which started off as the Pancreatic Cancer Act, but they had to broaden it because I guess it didn't get enough support alone. Um, and it's, it, it directs the NCI to, or the NIH maybe, to give specific funding goals, though they're not determined what they are, but to have a report in front of Congress within two years um, of how to target cancers that are what we call recalcitrant, meaning they affect uh, more than there's some minimum number, I think more than 10,000 people a year, and the long-term survival is less than 20%. Uh, of course, that fits pancreatic cancer. It does fit lung cancer, but very few other cancers. Liver cancer is also in that group. But it's essentially to provide more resources for these cancers that, to date, have not been uh, successfully 
uh, treated with current uh, research efforts, not out of lack of trying, but because they've just been very challenging. And our hope is that with, with using every technology that's available, new chemotherapy, new surgical techniques, and a lot of an effort into the epidemiology and the genetics of this disease, we'll be able to make advances and hopefully you know, get pancreatic cancer from being the bottom of the list to somewhere further up. Let's put it that way. So thank you very much for your attention, and I'd be happy to take questions. Yes. Thanks for coming up here to give us this your talk. Um, I have a couple of questions, or two questions rather. First is, uh, you know, for patients who are treated with neoadjuvant therapy, regardless of the solid tumor disease site, whether you look at colorectal or rectal, I should say, pancreatic cancer, you know, we look at what's called the treatment effect. Right. We're looking at, like, the pathologist can tell whether how much fibrosis or how well that neoadjuvant therapy works, whether it's chemo, whether it's radiation. So my question is, you know, in, in, to do that, you have to ultimately go to surgery, right? You have to then resect the tumor right. so the pathologist can look at it. In your group that you treated with IRE, yeah, I mean, you've seen to see if you can see a difference in your treatment effect with this electroporation right. and permeability so, of the stroma that comes up. And so you do have a subgroup there you can do that with. Have you already looked at that? So we have, so generally the IRE is done terminal, I mean, at the la not terminally, literally, but at the last stage of treatment. So they'll get the chemotherapy. At the time of surgery, they'll have the IRE. And so we don't generally have a biopsy post-treatment. It's done at the same time, yes. They, they do it at the same surgical time. But so the, you don't do the IRE first and then remove it. You resect what you're going to resect and then do the IRE to what's remaining. Oh, for remaining margin. Remaining margin, yeah. And so, I mean, I think, just for example, we had a patient two weeks ago who had neoadjuvant therapy, clearly very advanced, locally advanced disease. She went to surgery, had a, had a Whipple. It was a path CR, so there was nothing left in her, which is extremely uncommon in pancreatic cancer. But she had a lot of soft tissue around her SMA. They 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 ablated it. They did nano knife. But we don't you know we don't know if it was viable tissue. And we didn't biopsy it first. You can't really. And it was last. It was two weeks ago. So I don't know what her long term outcome is. But that's we don't have the, the knowledge yet. Did we need to do that? Should we have done that? And what did it look like? It's interesting that you might be permeating in terms of drug delivery. Sure. Be changing that stromal issue. Second question I have is pretty quick: Is are you doing uh, neoadjuvant trials in both Irinox or Gemafraxane off protocol, off study? So, so this is very metastatic study. Right. So, so this is a huge black hole, I would say, in terms of what to give as a neoadjuvant therapy. Uh, we at historically at Columbia have used some, a regimen called GTX or GAX. You know, so Gem. Taxane plus Zalota, with the results I showed you were from that, which were very good. Uh, we still, you know, I've moved over a little bit to Fulfirinox in select patients. Um, Fulfirinox is slightly more toxic than that regimen, but has a better track record in phase three in metastatic setting. Are you doing it for but advanced we're using it for locally advanced, absolutely, yeah. Um, and again, it, you know, so it's also a selective population because a lot of people come to our center because they've been told somewhere else that they can't have surgery. And so they're both motivated, they're potential surgical candidates. So we, have a, we, in general, have a better patient population. And this is why it's representative of our center, but not necessarily national data. Yes? So the competing therapy might be resection of that artery and reconstruction. Right. Are there outcomes data for that, or are you trying that? So, we, so I think that's been tried in the past. Again, I'm not going to speak too much for the surgeons. But in general, uh, the, the, the data has not been successful in, in, re in reconstructing arteries. Um, that I'm quoting verbatim from my surgeons. I, I'm not f as familiar with, you know, if there are exceptions to that. There are some arteries that can be removed. Clearly, there are situations where, 
Obviously, if it's a distal pancreatectomy, you can take some of those. Splenic artery can go. Sometimes a GDA can go, depending on which part of the stomach, what's collateral. But in general, you know, I think attempts to remove the superior mesenteric artery and celiac axis have not been successful, with the exception of Appleby procedures. But uh, it's rare. They'd, and our surgeons no longer will try to reconstruct arteries. So there might be other surgeons who disagree. So, well, yes? Do okay. um, you know when or if uh, treatment might include Biologics, like having 60, 40, or checkpoint So that's a phenomenal question. Um, uh, we are all asking that question. Um, so to date, you know, the, the CD40 trials have been ongoing at Penn for a little bit of time. They, they've had some issues uh, for several, I think, more technical than anything. Um, you know, there's, I, I don't know if it just came out, but there's a new paper from, from Vanderheide about CD40 and checkpoint blockade in mouse, you know, using a mouse model, KPC model with, he, that study was done with subcutaneous. I saw a manuscript last week. I don't remember where it was published, but, or if it's in press. But, um, you know, they, the problem is that so far the data have not been as good in pancreatic cancer as I'd say every other cancer that's been looked at. So the checkpoint blockades clearly did not show efficacy as single agent in, in the small studies. There's a, there's a small study from Hopkins where they combined checkpoint blood, CTLA-4 in that case to their vaccine and saw a hint of benefit, and there's some ongoing trials in that. We're, we're looking to give chemotherapy plus checkpoint inhibition in the hope that they'll synergize in a way. I, I think you know, in, in the preclinical data, the best thing has been CD40 checkpoint blockade and chemotherapy. But I, I think we're a little bit away from getting that into a human so far. But hopefully we'll get there. Yes. So, so there's a couple of things. I mean, I, I there's there are certainly um, trials that you know we're both participating in. There's immune therapy, so I shouldn't call it chemo. So there's a large phase two B study of of uh, Listeria or GVAX vaccine led by Hopkins, but a multi-center study that showed some benefit last year at GI ASCO. Um, but I think, you know, there, the other therapies are things of the nature we're doing. A, we're part of a study um, looking at uh, PEG-PH20 or hyaluronidase, which there's debate about how it works, whether it permeabilizes the tumors, which is the hypothesis, or it just targets them directly. Um, I think these are, that's not chemotherapy. Uh, there are other things, you know, there was recently a phase three study published from uh, uh, albumin-bound irinotecan. I don't think it has a name yet, but MM398, uh, which was a positive phase three study. Uh, it's not clear if it's better than irinotecan because they didn't compare it to that. They compared it to 5-FU. Um, but I think that's something that's up for approval by the FDA. I don't know, I don't know if they'll get it. Um, and then, you know, there are, other, there are other agents. We're looking at glutaminase inhibitors and all, all kinds of other things that interfere with metabolism in tumors, things that, that change chemotherapy delivery that are ongoing in clinical trials. So well, I was wondering whether if, if there's a delivery problem getting to the tumor, are they all going to fail? Unless, of course, you can find a way to get through that fibrosis. Right. So I, I think, you know, the, the current thinking, which is evolving, 
is that it's not, it's not simply mechanics of delivery, that the stroma is, is tumor-associated stroma. It's induced by the pancreatic, probably, epithelial cells, the tumor cells, and that it in some way serves to either protect them or maybe prevent metastasis. It might have dual roles, but that it's, an, it's, not, it's not one monolithic thing that, you know, there's a blockage, you've got to open it up and get inside. There's some parts of that that are probably protective, some that are probably not protective for the tumor cells, and depending on which one we target, we may or may not have you know, better or worse outcomes. Um, the, the thing I referenced, there was a clinical trial of an inhibitor of hedgehog, a smoothened inhibitor, that had a, had a negative effect, a deleterious effect on survival when combined with gemcitabine. Mm -hmm. And so that's not the direction we want. It was done in humans. You know, that's, so that's not obviously something we want to see. There's a lot of other data emerging, so things like PEG-PH20 or hyaluronidase, that might have a beneficial effect. So. And then there, there, are, there are trials of BRCA inhibitors, Velaparib, that are ongoing and have had some data. So we'll see. I mean, I think, unfortunately, there's no double, I would say. We're getting a lot of singles, or some singles, and hopefully they'll add up. Okay? Great. Well, thank you very much. So.